Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B5, Eclipsis. Their first child was a boy, an heir to rule Mauritania and continue the family line. That being the case, the proper name was crucial. Tradition suggested Juba, or possibly Masinissa or one of the other distinguished members of Juba's Numidian line. In what was probably a shock to everyone, Juba and Selene named their son Ptolemy. The name suggested several things. It pointed to Selene as a queen both fiercely proud of her heritage and strong enough to convince her husband of the virtue of the choice. It pointed to Juba as being open to not only honoring his wife's royal lineage above his own, but also willing to risk the ire of his foster uncle, and Roman society in general, to do so. Roman children were always named after the father, and the Ptolemies best remembered as the last great dynasty to defy Octavian. To say the choice was bold would be something of an understatement. I mean, it wasn't like they were naming him Mark Antony, but you could see it from there. The couple may have benefited from the birth that same year of the first and only son of their foster brother Tiberius. The boy, named Drusus in honor of Tiberius's brother, represented another potential heir for Octavian. While this event may have merited more attention, it's doubtful the naming of Ptolemy escaped Octavian's notice, which probably meant that Juba went out of his way to reaffirm his loyalty in every other respect. A dozen years into ruling their new kingdom, Juba and Selene had had an eventful ride. The capital of Caesarea had been greatly remade in their image, the economy was doing well, and frontier defense was holding, if only just. The past decade had seen a number of tribal incursions into North Africa, many of them serious. The Roman proconsul of neighboring Africa, Lucius Sempronius Atratinus, had been granted a triumph for his victories over southern tribes in 21 BC. 
Two years later, his successor, Lucius Cornelius Balbus, earned his own triumph for campaigning against another local tribe, the Garamantes. And it was just the previous year, 14 BC, that Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, Roman governor of Crete and Cyrene, had defeated the powerful Marmardae, based in southern Cyrenaica. Though no one knew it at the time, Quirinius's victory would inaugurate nearly two decades of North African peace. Even as African governors were defending their provinces, Egyptian prefects were launching invasions of their own. The disgraced Cornelius Gallus had been succeeded in 26 BC by Aelius Gallus, who'd like to stress that he's no relation. Gallus was supposedly a close friend of the geographer Strabo, making him a likely acquaintance of Juba's as well. Just as Juba and Selene were getting settled in Caesarea, Octavian ordered Gallus to launch a military expedition into southern Arabia, otherwise known as Arabia Felix. His orders were pro forma, conclude treaties with friendly tribes, and crush any opposition. While the expedition was dressed up as a fact-finding venture, Octavian was really interested in getting his hands on some of Arabia's legendary wealth. Gallus's expedition to Arabia Felix went about as well as Karsten Niebuhr's. Unreliable Nabataean guides, baking heat, contaminated water, little food, poor shelter, and, above all, the ravages of unknown disease slowly ground his legions down to a nub. Meanwhile, Amonoranus, the one-eyed warrior queen of Cush, overran Roman forces at Oswan and Philae taking prisoners, loot, and, most embarrassingly, tearing down several statues of Octavian. By the time Gallus brought his battered remnants back to Alexandria, his pink slip was already waiting. His replacement was Gaius Petronius, a brilliant general and personal friend of Octavian's. In 24 BC, Petronius drove Cushite forces from Oswan, then pursued them south into Nubia. The Romans sacked the city of Napata, took many prisoners, and installed a local military garrison. Then, believing his point had been made, Petronius led his forces back to Egypt. As soon as he'd left, Queen Amonoranus marched north from Mero and attempted to wipe out the garrison. But Petronius returned just in time to stiffen its defense. Subsequent negotiations led to Cush being declared a Roman client kingdom. Since then, Egypt had also remained quiet. Back in Mauritania, Juba hadn't waited for peace to indulge his loves of writing and exploration. Wanting to understand the limits of his domain, he designed and dispatched a number of expeditions to the Atlas Mountains, the southern deserts, and the islands off the Atlantic coast. The voyages of Hanno had laid some of the groundwork, and Juba also had copies of relevant works from both the Carthaginian State Library and other Egyptian, Greek, and Latin sources. What these works all reinforced was that very little was known about the extremities of Mauritania. It was a situation Juba was happy to remedy.
Though interesting discoveries were made on all fronts, it was the coastal islands that yielded the greatest benefits. I already mentioned that Mauritania had a respectable fishing industry. One resulting export was the popular fish sauce called garum, but another was purple dye obtained from shellfish, the same kind that had once made the Phoenicians so wealthy. The problem was the process generated an intense odor, rarely appreciated by the locals. But move production just offshore and, well, hey, let's make some money, people. Juba used his economic ties with Roman Spain to get the new industry up on its feet. Before long, Gaetulian purple was a strong rival of the classic Tyrian, and the offshore islands used to process the shellfish were being called the Purple Islands. Farther afield, to the south and west, Juba explored a much larger group of islands, at least one of which was home to a large breed of dog. Juba named these islands the Dog Islands, Canariae Insulae in Latin. They come down to us today as the Canary Islands. Along with the economic benefits, Juba's expeditions also generated plenty of material for his next book. The project was his most ambitious yet, intended to cover the history, geography, and natural history of not only his own kingdom, but pretty much all of North Africa, with the exception of Lower Egypt. He decided to name the book using the old Homeric term for the entire continent of Africa, Libya, or in Greek, Libica. The book would end up being a 20-year project, finally completed around 5 BC. It's known to us today by references in later works, particularly by Pliny the Younger. Among its more interesting contents were a detailed discussion of the North African elephant, now extinct, and the theory that the Nile originated in Mauritania. Like most scholarly works of the age, Libica was written in Greek but intended for a Roman audience. In addition to satisfying Juba's own personal interest, the work was also a way to give something back to Rome. In particular, Juba tailored his explorations to support an effort by Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa to create a detailed map of the entire Roman world. Of course, in the dozen years between 25 and 13 BC, the Roman world had been far from static. In the broad sense, there had been new Roman conquests in both Iberia and the Alps, and successful negotiations with the Parthians had finally recovered the lost eagle standards of Marcus Crassus. The Roman princeps Octavian, 50 years old and universally known as Augustus, had recently been granted general consular imperium by the Senate, making his hold on absolute power nearly complete. His last remaining formal title, Pontifex Maximus, would be gained the following year, on the death of Marcus Lepidus. As always, family matters remained the most complicated. After the death of Marcellus, Octavian had arranged for his daughter Julia to marry his new presumed successor, Agrippa. 
which meant that Agrippa first had to divorce his current wife, Octavia's daughter, Marcella Major. As a consolation, Octavia arranged for Marcella to marry her own stepbrother, Mark Antony's last surviving son, Eulus Antonius. Confused? Good, that means you're paying attention. Agrippa had long been Octavian's favorite general and all-around right-hand man. Humble, effective, and a hard worker, Agrippa was the driving force behind Octavian's many building projects and his go-to guy for managing troublesome provinces. In addition to his critical work improving Rome's aqueducts and sewers, Agrippa was also responsible for erecting one of Rome's most famous temples, the Pantheon, or Place of All the Gods. After his marriage to Julia in 21 BC, Agrippa took a series of postings from Gaul to Syria, where his rule was always considered fair and effective. He also led military campaigns in both Iberia and Pannonia to put down restless tribes and expand Octavian's holdings. The same time frame saw the marriage of Tiberius to Vipsania Agrippina, Agrippa's daughter by a previous wife, and the marriage of Tiberius's brother Drusus to Octavia's daughter Antonia Minor. And, oh yes, more children. The first was Agrippa and Julia's son Gaius, born in 20 BC, then their daughter Julia the Younger in 19 BC, and then their second son Lucius in 17 BC. That same year, Octavian adopted both boys as his heirs. With Marcellus out of the picture, and Agrippa getting on in years, Octavian was clearly banking on the next generation. In 15 BC, Drusus and Antonia Minor had their first child. He was named Tiberius, after Drusus's brother, but would later become much better known as Germanicus. In 14 BC, Julia and Agrippa had their second daughter, Agrippina Major. And in 13 BC, where we started all this, Tiberius had his first son, who he named Drusus to return his brother's favor. By 13 BC, the young boys who'd grown up together had become men with serious responsibilities. The 35-year-old Juba had been king of Mauritania for a dozen years. Meanwhile, Tiberius and Drusus, ages 29 and 25, had also been elevated to positions of power. Tiberius had served in the east under Agrippa and helped negotiate the return of Crassus's eagle standards. He'd then come west to fight alongside his brother Drusus in both Gaul and Raetia, modern Switzerland. When Tiberius returned to Rome in 13 BC, he was made a consul for the first time. The same year, Drusus was dispatched to govern Gaul and combat Germanic invasions. In 12 BC, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa died. His third son, born to Julia shortly afterward, was named Agrippa Posthumus in his honor. Octavian gave his old friend an elaborate funeral, and his ashes joined those of Marcellus in the Augustan Mausoleum.
For the next month, Octavian remained in mourning. And, no doubt, pondering his next move. His adopted heirs, Gaius and Lucius, were still just children. And, with Agrippa dead, another temporary stopgap was needed. In 11 BC, Octavian ordered Tiberius to divorce Vipsania Agrippina and marry his daughter Julia instead. Okay, so we've all gathered that Roman marriages were largely political affairs, meant to increase standing or solidify dynastic lines. But Octavian sometimes seemed to forget that he was dealing with real actual people, with real actual feelings and preferences. His daughter Julia, now 28, had already survived the deaths of two husbands, never much cared for Tiberius, and was pretty tired of being passed around like some kind of timeshare for Octavian's heirs. For his part, Tiberius really, really loved Vipsania Agrippina, didn't much care for Julia, and was also annoyed that Octavian only considered him a temporary fix. Unsurprisingly, their marriage would prove to be an unmitigated disaster, one which, instead of firming up Octavian's plans, would end up nearly destroying them. 11 BC also brought news of the death of Juba and Selene's foster mother, Octavia. Having just buried his closest friend, Octavian was now forced to inter his beloved sister, placing her urn beside that of her son, Marcellus. For Selene, Cleopatra was likely the only mother she'd ever acknowledge. But for Juba, Octavia's loss must have been as hard as that of Marcellus. The next few years seemed to belong to their foster brother Drusus. First, there was the news of the birth of his second son, Claudius. Then, in 9 BC, Drusus followed their stepbrother Iulus Antonius as Roman consul. Despite the honor, Drusus always seemed restless in Rome, and was soon back across the Rhine fighting the Chatti and Marcomanni. His victories were quickly elevating him to legendary status, and Drusus was penetrating further north and east than any previous Roman commander. But sadly, it wasn't to last. In the midst of the campaign, Drusus took a bad fall from his horse. His injuries were serious enough that he was soon on the verge of death. His older brother Tiberius rode nonstop to reach him arriving in Drusus's camp just before he died. Tiberius supposedly walked alongside his brother's body on the entire journey back to Rome. News of Drusus's death reached Mauritania around the same time as the birth of Juba and Selene's second child, a girl. In honor of their foster brother, they named the child Drusilla. This was probably a case of Juba getting his way, since I'm guessing Selene was pushing pretty hard for Cleopatra. The year after Drusus's death, Tiberius was back north, campaigning against Germanic tribes. In 7 BC, he served his second consulship, and in 6 BC, he returned from the frontier to receive more Roman honors. 
This time, he was granted tribunician powers by the Senate and slated for a four-year command of the entire Roman East. Temporary or not, Tiberius was on the verge of a major promotion, which was why it came as such a shock when he announced later that year that he was withdrawing from politics and retiring to the Greek island of Rhodes. Pick your reason. The recent death of Drusus, his horribly unhappy marriage to Julia, his bitterness at having to divorce his previous wife, his reluctance to act as a placeholder for the future ascension of Gaius and Lucius, the feeling that he'd given so much of his life to the Republic, but still never earned Octavian's love. Whether Tiberius's retirement was genuine or a ploy to make his stepfather realize how indispensable he was, the result was the same. Octavian's succession plans had been upset once again, this time not by fate but by disobedience. He was understandably furious. In 5 BC, Juba was also struck a sudden and devastating blow. His beloved wife, Cleopatra Selene, died at the age of 35. For 20 years, they'd ruled Mauritania both happily and well, equal partners in a novel and ambitious project at the edge of the Roman world. Whether she'd ever overcome the trauma of her youth is difficult to say, but it's hard to imagine her finding a more fitting partner than Juba. Selene's legacy was everywhere, in Mauritania's capital, its royal court, and, most of all, in the two young children who'd continue her family's line. Selene was interred in Mauritania's royal mausoleum. It's not known whether any of their extended family sailed from Rome to attend the funeral. Aside from Juba, Eight-year-old Ptolemy and four-year-old Drusilla, the only other known guest was Selene's close friend, the great poet Cornagoras of Mytilene. It was fitting that the man who'd written the poem for their wedding should write another for her death. The evening of her passing had been marked by a total lunar eclipse, and Cornagoras used the imagery in his epigram. The moon herself grew dark, rising at sunset, covering her suffering in the night, because she saw her beautiful namesake, Selene, breathless, descending to Hades. With her, she had had the beauty of her light in common, and mingled her own darkness with her death. The next few years of Juba's reign must have been difficult, adjusting to the challenges of sole rule while raising two young children. But even if he'd fallen out of touch with affairs back in Rome, the truly operatic tragedies of 2 BC must have demanded his attention. Sometime that year, Juba learned that Octavian had publicly accused his daughter Julia of both adultery and treason. Among the many Romans with whom she was accused of consorting was Iulus Antonius. Actually, there's a whole weird thing with Iulus that I didn't really get into. 
Even though he was Mark Antony's oldest surviving son, Octavian had apparently taken a liking to him, thought highly of him, and set him on a path to Roman leadership. But I have to believe that the whole Julia thing was, at least in part, a big spiteful delayed F.U. to the man who'd killed both his father and his older brother. Either way, since Eulus was married to Marcella Major, the affair with Julia really meant he was cheating on his stepsister with his step-cousin. So, ick. But more seriously, the liaisons were intertwined with plots to overthrow the Principate, making them crimes against both Octavian and Rome. Octavian sent most of Julia's lovers into exile, and Eulus was driven to commit suicide. But Octavian reserved his harshest punishment for Julia. Tiberius was one thing, and Eulus another, but the betrayal of Julia, his own flesh and blood, and mother of his future heirs, could never be forgiven. First, Octavian divorced her from Tiberius, and you can bet that Tiberius danced a big happy dance when he got that welcome news. Then, Octavian exiled Julia to a small island, around a half-mile square, with no visitors or companions other than her mother, Octavian's ex-wife, Scribonia. By Octavian's order, she was forbidden from ever seeing her children again. All this must have seemed incredible, and Juba was likely happy to be far from the capital. Since becoming king, Juba had sometimes written to Octavian requesting advice on matters of governance. But the princeps had never visited Mauritania, and Juba didn't consider their relationship particularly close. Which is why he was surprised, in late 2 BC, to receive a personal request from Octavian. The princeps was now 61 years old, and most of the people he'd ever counted on had either died or betrayed him. Not so, Juba. Whether in the role of elder foster brother to the family's children or Roman client king of Mauritania, Jubit always proven himself to be loyal to a fault. Beyond that, his many scholarly works, including the recently completed Libica, showed him to be knowledgeable in the peoples and places of the world. These traits made him the perfect candidate to accompany Octavian's adopted son Gaius on his upcoming eastern expedition. Gaius Caesar, oldest son of Julia and Agrippa, was now 18, and the princeps wanted him to assume the eastern imperium neglected by Tiberius. Pressing matters were calling for attention in Parthia, Nabataea, Armenia, and Judea and Octavian could think of no better advisor for his adopted son than Juba. For his part, Juba was likely grateful for Octavian's trust, and energized by the opportunity to visit new and interesting lands. Leaving his kingdom and his children in the trust of senior officials, Juba sailed for Rome to begin the journey east. <laughs> ¶¶ 